You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Plenary 2, Creating Bridges Between Research, Policy, and Practice on Addressing Conflict Sexual Violence. You are a part of the Missing Peace Global Symposium. This is Plenary 2, and we're delighted to welcome you back this afternoon with a really remarkable panel of experts that will be led and moderated by our colleague and friend, Dr. Dara K. Cohen. She is the political scientist and professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Her research and teaching interests include the causes and consequences of civil war, gender, political violence, and does qualitative and mixed research methods. She's known for her book, Rape During Civil War, and for many other publications. We know her as one of the first scholars in the Missing Peace Scholar Network, and we're so delighted to welcome her back as moderator of the afternoon's plenary. Thank you, and thank you all. Over to you. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Um, I just want to say welcome back to everyone who is joining us here in person, and a special welcome to our online audience that is joining us via our live stream. Um, <clears throat> I'm just very grateful to be here today with all of you amongst this incredibly impressive and powerful group of experts from all different sectors. It's just really a pleasure to be in the presence of so much knowledge, expertise, and lived experience on this incredibly important topic. Uh, the purpose of this particular discussion is to talk about the kind of policy problem that conflict-related sexual violence is, uh, what different research disciplines can contribute to our collective understanding of the problem of conflict-related sexual violence, what, can, what do policymakers and practitioners need from academic researchers? And how can research policy and programming be bridged to better address conflict-related sexual violence? In other words, how can we bridge the gap between uh, what are often seen uh, as silos between those various uh, sectors? I'm, I'm going to start by just uh, giving some brief introductions to this wonderful panel that is on the stage with me. Um, I'm joined by really some of the foremost academic experts, policymakers, and practitioners who are on the cutting edge of research and practice in each of their respective fields. Um, immediately next to me is Elizabeth Jean Wood, who is a professor of political science, international and area studies at Yale University. Um, Libby has been a mentor, advisor, and friend, someone who I have greatly admired in my own research since I started my dissertation on the topic of wartime sexual violence in 2006. Um, and I think it's not overstating the case to say that Libby's research really um, created and shaped a lot of the field of um, the academic social science research on uh, wartime sexual violence. Um, Next to her is Philip Schultz, who uh, is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bremen. 
And um, I have been reading your work for quite a long time and assigning it in my classes as well. Philip is a leader in research on men and masculinities in the conflict-related uh, sexual violence space. And he's also written very eloquently and thoughtfully about the ethics of research in this space as well. Um, next to Philip is Brahmi Pulogasinam. Pula, Pula sorry, um, who is the lead of Transitional Justice and Accountability in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor at the US Department of State. We've just met for the first time a couple of moments ago, um, but it's really a pleasure to be able to be joined by uh, someone who is part of the effort to lead work on uh, comprehensive transitional justice in this very important space. Um, and finally, at the end, uh, we are joined by Pyle Shaw, who is the director of the Program on Sexual Violence and Conflict Zones at Physicians for Human Rights. Um, and Physicians for Human Rights are also, I think, among the leaders in the humanitarian sector, um, thinking about, uh, in really creative and, I think, at least on a personal level, very inspiring ways about combining evidence and research. Um, and in fact, I had uh, members from Pyle's team in my class that I teach at the Kennedy School school on qualitative and mixed research methods, um, just to share some of the incredibly creative thinking that, um, that is happening at, at PHR on how to collect evidence and share it back with the policy community. Um, so with that, I'm going to start with some questions for our panelists, and I'm going to start with um, Libby. Um, Libby, can you share with us um, what have social science researchers really learned over the past decade, uh, since maybe since our last Missing Peace meeting, um, about conflict-related sexual violence, and what are some of the most important findings that have emerged from the research? First of all, thanks uh, very much for the invitation to participate in this event. I am not only learning about cutting edge research and innovative policy initiatives, but I'm also being inspired by your dedication, commitment, and insight into this difficult topic that brings such suffering to survivors, to those who don't survive, and their communities. So I'm going to focus on conflict-related sexual violence in a somewhat narrow sense, that by armed actors during conflict. And I think it's very important to put front and center uh, the finding that uh, conflict-related sexual violence varies across armed actors. It varies in form, whether it takes the form of gang rape, sexual slavery, forced abortion, and so on, in targeting against whom does it take place, and of course, in frequency. Um, so the form, for example, uh, some armed organizations engaged in forced marriage against a particular social group and punish other forms of sexual violence by their combatants. On the other hand, some armed organizations engage in a pattern of very wide repertoire and very wide targeting. So that's a sharp contrast. Some armed organizations, as we'll hear more about, um, target boys and men and some of them target as well gender and sexual minorities. And in contrast, some armed organizations engage in very little conflict-related sexual violence against civilians. Um, and uh, it's important to note that this absence is documented not just through desk work, but also through field work in the setting, talking with local actors and so on. So, Based on this variation, one important takeaway early on in the stream of research 
is variation across organizations within the same conflict. That means that the unit of analysis cannot be the conflict if you're going to try to understand the roots of variation and patterns. It has to be the armed organization, and it also cannot be uh, the culture of the society because that also cannot ex explain that variation. Um, another important finding is that uh, state forces are more likely uh, than non-state actors to engage in uh, high levels of rape against civilians and of conflict-related sexual violence generally. And most importantly, as a takeaway here, is that two decades of research has shown that these crimes, which inflict, inflict such suffering on those victimized and on their communities, are not unavoidable collateral damage. They are not inevitable, and they can be avoided. If we have some armed organizations that don't engage in it, then we can hold commanders of other armed organizations responsible. But to do so effectively depends on understanding why and how sexual violence during war occurs. So we can begin to understand variation at a deeper level by considering on the part of an armed organization, does it occur as policy from above or is it some sort of opportunistic violence um, by combatants uh, on the scene? Uh, and indeed, some armed organizations engage in a form of sexual violence against a certain targeted group as a military strategy, a tactic, a weapon of war. For example, as part of ethnic cleansing, torture of detainees, sexual slavery, forced marriage. And again, often against a particular social group. And other organizations, however, engage in a policy sexual violence, but not as an immediate military strategy, most often as a way to regulate the sexual and reproductive lives of their combatants. For example, in some cases of forced marriage, sexual slavery, and so on. And again, often against a targeted social group. In other settings, yes, indeed, it may be opportunistic, driven by the private preferences of combatants. But another, I think, important finding is that you also have cases that are in some sense in between. Uh, it's not a policy from above for either reason, nor is it opportunistic by individual combatants, but it is driven by social dynamics among the combatants themselves and commanders tolerate it. That can be a recipe for very frequent sexual violence. That is, it can be frequent without having been adopted as a policy. Uh, examples are, as Dara has documented, where groups um, forcibly recruit that uh, through mechanisms of socialization can give rise to high levels of social violence, sexual violence, though it's not an explicit organizational policy. And once established, what I call sexual violence as a practice can be very persistent. For example, military sexual assault within the ranks of the US military uh, persists despite accumulating costs to the US military in terms of public scrutiny and congressional meddling in their chain of command. Militaries do not like that. And nonetheless, though I think increasingly sincerely, commanders are trying to stamp it out, nonetheless it persists, as does retaliation against people who report it. Uh, but we should note that it varies across units. So it's not that this is constant across the US uh, military, which again points to the salience of unit level gender and organizational norms and culture. So 
um, I want to emphasize the malleability of gender norms, relations, uh, and practices in some settings. Great. Um, <clears throat> the fact of variation is probably one of the most important findings, as you've just said, to emerge from um, the social science literature. And of course, that um, I think thinking about variation originated with your 2006 article on, on that point. And you've also talked about it, the other important finding of not just simply thinking about the causes of sexual violence as either opportunistic or strategic, getting away from that binary and making it more nuanced. Um, so I think those are, are two really important um, results to, for us to consider. How have scholars explained these differences? How have they come to understand why there is variation both in patterns of conflict-related sexual violence and variation about um, sexual violence as a practice, as a policy, and as um, a strategy? Well, ideology of the armed organization is key to explaining many, but not all of these patterns of uh, sexual and other types of conflict-related violence. Ideology teaches normative beliefs about what violence is permissible and against whom, uh, and what violence is not, including those based on beliefs uh, about appropriate gender relations and hierarchies. So for example, the Islamic State's ideology explains why it targeted some groups with particular forms of sexual violence and did not target other groups with that form of sexual violence. Ideology also ex helps explain the near absence of conflict-related sexual violence on the part of some, not all, leftist uh, insurgent organizations. But to have these effects, ideology needs to be more than cheap talk. It must be inculcated and enforced through the design of institutions, institutions, for example, of recruitment, socialization, and discipline. And of course, armed organizations vary in the strength of their ideology. Some, indeed, it is just cheap talk. And so some have, and some have weak or no institutions for the inculcation and enforcement of ideology. So beliefs about gender relations and hierarchy key to the pattern of sexual violence may reflect that of the local society, not of the armed organization itself. So because analysis of gender relations and hierarchy both as lived and as a normative aspiration on the part of the group are essential to explanations of conflict-related sexual violence. And if they are to explain patterns of variation, they themselves must vary. Uh, researchers have become increasingly more sophisticated about the role of gender rela relations in shaping patterns, asking under what conditions is it the beliefs and practices concerning gender in society that matters for patterns of uh, conflict-related sexual violence, what's legitimate, what's normalized, with what you can do with impunity, and so on. And in contrast, under what conditions is it the beliefs and practices concerning gender on the part of the armed organization that determines those patterns? And this can go two directions. It could be that the armed organization has successfully inculcated and enforced an ideological vision of those gendered uh, beliefs and norms. Or it could be that it is uh, the armed organization at the level of the rank and file that has uh, adopted different from society, but its own unit level gender norms and belief, and that's what's driving the pattern of sexual, uh, uh, conflict-related sexual violence. And the third question is, under what conditions 
do commanders, based on their gendered uh, beliefs about gender norms, um, uh, uh, do they tolerate sexual violence uh, on the part of their combatants? Wonderful. Um, so you've, you've laid out for us, I think, uh, some of the really important ways that the research has developed some answers to our open questions and puzzles, and some of our under has created, I think, uh, some more clear understanding of motivations and explanations for variation. Um, just briefly, what do you see as some of the um, most exciting avenues of research? What are, what's most promising? What are some of the most urgent uh, res research yeah. questions? Well, just as my distillation of findings just now does not do justice to this expanding field uh, of research uh, on conflict-related sexual violence, meaning sexual violence by armed combatants in the way I'm using it, nor can I do justice to the ingenuity and creativity on the part of researchers today, but I'll try. Not only are scholars creating a new data sets, um, uh, but also they're bringing cutting edge methods to the documentation and analysis of uh, sexual violence during war, including those, and this is really important, that address to some extent the underreporting of sexual violence that so uh, complicates analysis in this field. So among others are list experiments. So it's an indirect way to assess, for example, the prevalence of uh, sexual violence as a very sensitive item that people may not answer if you simply ask them. So you, we can talk a little bit more about how that goes, but it's an indirect measure of, of prevalence of very sensitive items. Um, the collection and analysis of focus group data that pays attention to the differences of what I privately think and what I may say to the rest of you in my focus group and what the group itself may endorse at the end of that process. And also doing much more sophisticated statistical work on existing data to account for those um, the underreporting of sexual violence. So in data sets, you may have a zero that really is the absence of sexual violence, or you may have a zero that looks just the same, but it's underreporting. And so some of these cutting edge statistical methods model um, uh, which zeros are which with you know, some uncertainty, but modeling by which zeros are which, you can then try to assess um, correctly correcting for that underreporting what findings in the field stand. So for example, Dara's work on forced recruiting stands once you correct for um, false zeros, so to speak. Um, uh, uh, another finding that stands is that rebel groups with fair and inclusive processes of selecting leaders, they engage in less sexual uh, uh, violence during war. And this technique appears to resolve some contradictory findings in the literature. For example, the relationship between having women combatants in the organization and, whether, and, the, and the organization's level of sexual violence. It's actually positive for state forces and negative for non-state actors, which um, uh, is a very interesting differentiation of these two kinds of armed actors. Um, and it disconfirms, it disconfirms some other findings. Um, uh, but So that's great, but I really think it's important that we continue with some of the most productive 
of the methods in which we as a community engage already. And I would say one of them is analyzing variation in patterns within the, uh, the same organization across units informed by gender analysis. For example, deeply qualitative research like oral histories with former combatants. Assessing whether uh, a pattern of sexual violence is an organizational policy or whether it is um, a practice, and doing so even in the case in which we only have indirect evidence. So for example, um, a co-author and I published a recent paper in which we make an argument based only on indirect evidence that um, sexual violence by the Myanmar military against the Rohingya is likely state policy. Um, uh, not mere opportunism. The evidence that, um, that comes about as a result of supporting survivors and survivor-led organizations to pursue this work. Um, I think at, I'd like to just highlight that at PSVI, DRL was very proud to announce that we would put aside $10 million over two years in global programs that support these kinds of civil society efforts and survivor-led efforts to investigate and document CRSV alongside the MORAD code. And just really look looking at the code of conduct and ensuring its incorporation and best practices in documentation efforts as part of how the USG actually pursues this documentation. Um, and I'd, I'd like to just give an example of this work because I think it makes it a little bit more concrete, um, which is that we have programming in Burma where, as already mentioned, sexual violence has historically been and continues to be used by the Burmese military to control and intimidate civilians. DRL programs to date are increasing the capacity of grassroots and civil society survivor organizations to credibly and professionally investigate and document CRSV while strengthening survivor-centric legal strategies to advance accountability in both the reparative and restorative areas. And Central to this in terms of how we do this work is really wanting to see that CRSV survivors themselves are able to determine their own justice, uh, justice sector agenda and safely advocate for their needs. Do I have a minute to talk about our small grants or do you want me to move on? Because I realize this is quite a lot, um, but I can always stop there as well. I, I think we should pause there. Okay. Um, and then I'm hoping during the Q&A we can also talk a little bit about your, from your perspective, um, what donors and policymakers most need from researchers. If you had to name maybe the top priority, I think that would be useful for Q&A. But in the interest of time, so we can reserve time for Q&A from the audience, I'm going to turn to Pyle. Um, Kyle, uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, Physicians for Human Rights and the work that your organization does? We know that PHR works at the intersection of science, medicine, and the law to address CRSV as both a human rights violation and an international crime. How does research fit into the important work that you do in terms of programming and policy impact and practice? Thanks, Sarah. It's a, it's a great question and one that I'm really happy to be able to talk about with all of you. Um, first, I'd, like my fellow co-panelists, I really want to thank USIP for convening this conversation. It's so energizing to be together, to have colleagues from all over the world, and, and such rich experts and expertise being shared. So really, thank you. Um, 
So Physicians for Human Rights was founded about 35 years ago and really works at that intersection of science, medicine, and the law, and works specifically to address mass atrocities as well as human rights abuses. Our work is, is really squarely sitting at that connection between research policy practice, and I would also add accountability. So I think accountability and justice at, at the end of that. So as all of you know all too well, um, sexual violence cases are some of the hardest um, to pursue justice for and accountability for. Many survivors don't report, and, and Libby's point on underreporting is one that we really focus on and really consider how we can create systems um, to allow for greater reporting and in a survivor-centered and trauma-informed way, so actually by trying to transform the systems that survivors are reporting into. Um, and then also, how do we think creatively about research and other methodologies to allow for greater insight into what survivors are actually experiencing? So patterns of perpetration, patterns of harm, need for services, and also patterns around perpetrators. And so really looking across all of those different areas and thinking creatively about how we can mobilize and gather that evidence without necessarily um, needing a survivor to formally be coming forward to report. So we really look very squarely at that challenge of evidence, um, as well as the lack thereof. And evidence in, in two different ways, in the legal context where we think about forensic evidence or medical legal evidence um, and what's needed to prosecute or what's needed to pursue reparation. And then there's the second type of evidence, which is really the evidence of what works and what doesn't work, um, and really looking at standards and best practices that exist. And what we see in our work um, is that it's really important to be bridging all of these together, and that research is one really critical keystone, but amongst a range of different strategies. For research to be effective in creating policy reform or shaping practice, it has to come alongside a, a range of other strategies, and it can't really exist in a vacuum. And so part of PHR's role in our niche, I think, is really trying to bring that research into areas where we can share it out with you know, experts on the ground that are doing the work and really leading the effort and engaging with survivors. Um, and then how do we also translate what we know works into tools that are really practical and accessible that can be utilized by a range of different stakeholders? Our work really looks at the fact that um, survivors of conflict-related sexual violence really need a full multi-sectoral response. We can't just do the work by targeting one sector or another. Um, and actually, part of the challenge is that there's often a siloing of, okay, this is the health sector, this is how you handle you know, treatment, um, and this is the legal sector, here's how you handle prosecution. And this group of experts here, you've done so much amazing work to break down those silos, and so I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know that's really been the core of PHR's work is how do we bring together multi-sectoral networks? How do we share out information from the health sector to the legal sector so that they can understand when they see terminology what it means? Um, or from the legal sector to the to you know to the health sector back. So you know why are why do we need you to ask questions about um, you know, if somebody says they're pregnant, why do we need to ask questions about if they were able to access care and, and were they detained? Was there, were they in a situation of captivity? You know, so to be able to explain across the why of what we're doing um, and also to be able to provide tools around what we know works in terms of um, trauma. And so creating an entire pathway from, from the first instance of reporting all the way through to judgment where we're really talking intentionally about trauma and what we know about what constitutes trauma-informed practices and what avoids re-traumatization. 
from that work, we then develop networks and we really try to keep this kind of community of practice that is really working individually on cases, but also able to share out knowledge and share out what's working and what isn't. And we also work to develop tools. So for example, um, you know, looking at protocols around engaging, so drawing, for example, on the NICHD protocol. So it's a protocol um, that is to allow interviewing of children in a way that's trauma-informed, um, and it specifically has been developed um, outside of a conflict setting, right? It's been developed more in, in the context of sexual violence and other forms of interviewing of children. And so our work is really thinking about how do we bridge from that kind of tool that exists outside of the conflict setting and how do we adapt and what kind of evidence do we have of what works and what doesn't and how do we tailor and create methodologies and, and tools. We also have standardized medical legal documentation forms, for example, that we also utilize um, and other, other materials like that. Um, and then, so we have this capacity development work, we have the networks, we have then the tools and resources. And then from there, we have a foundation where we've started to tackle the underreporting. We've started to create systems where, where survivors can come forward, where we might have more data and, and more information on what is occurring um, to survivors of sexual violence and what they're experiencing and by whom and how. And that's where we start trying to mobilize the research and really thinking about how we can take this evidence um, from the medical sector, for example, so you know the standardized medical legal form, how do we take that and then be able to do analysis to get concrete, rigorous data and find analysis of, of what survivors are experiencing and to be able to be used in justice processes or in accountability processes. Um, and then from there, we take the work and the research and, and we do an immense amount of advocacy. And, and this is one of, I think, PHR's real kind of origin and, and purpose is, is really to be able to bridge all of this to affect change. And so our, our work is really focused on, on thinking about what kinds of, you know, from looking at the advocacy questions from the outset. We, we start that in defining our research questions is where is this going to be used? How are we going to utilize it? And what do we hope will happen with this information? So for example, in August 2003, Physicians for Human Rights published a report on conflict-related sexual violence in Ethiopia with a specific focus on Tigray. The report, the data itself in the report was really powerful. It was drawing on the analysis of randomly sampled medical records from health facilities in Tigray. Um, and the analysis was identifying really key patterns in the manner in which CRSV was occurring, as well as in the characteristics of perpetrators. And so it was, it was really concrete data. It has a lot of potential, although I know there's a lot of conversations happening around what, what's been going on around Tigray, but it has a lot of potential in actually um, helping to shape policy response. But this, this research couldn't have happened in a vacuum, right? To be able to mobilize this research, we first had to start by building capacity and working with partners in terms of thinking of how do you do standardized medical legal documentation? What are the tools you need to be able to do that? And so really starting with capacity development, introduction of these kinds of tools, and a lot of conversations about, okay, these are the kinds of cases we're seeing, here's, you know, here's what's coming up. Um, and that creates an ecosystem, sort of, where, where then you can do this kind of research and documentation. Um, so really, you know, I think our, our work is looking at connecting evidence at all phases. It's evidence in the research sense, and then really connecting to then generating evidence in the legal sense. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, we are going to now shift gears to take some questions from the audience. Um, we'll collect a number of questions, and then um, the folks on the panel can answer um, whichever you, you would like to answer from the, from your own perspective. Um, I'm going to ask, as we did this morning, um, for those in the audience to please 
introduce yourself and then to please ask the briefest possible version of your question so that we can collect as many as possible and hear as many voices as possible. Um, so please raise your hand if you have a question. See some, okay. I see one up here in the front. Uh, hi, my name is Sofia Cardona. I'm a GBB focal point for UNHCR in Mexico. Um, my question, I think it's, it's mainly towards uh, Professor Dean Wood and, and towards uh, Philip, but if, if, feel free to take a crack at, at it, if you will. Um, I'm wondering, particularly when you're discussing perpetrators and, and falling outside of the binary of policy or, or opportunity and more looking towards um, sort of social tolerance for it, if you have found um, particular uh, instances or if, if, if your research has led you to what int intimate partner violence intersects with that particular tolerance, I'm asking this because in Mexico, um, what we're seeing from UNHCR is perpetrators, gang members mainly, and organized crime, so slightly different from armed groups, but the, the people that we find are at highest risk are women who are fleeing gang members who were also their forced partners. So IPV as well as gang violence. So I, I was wondering if you had that intersection. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's take another one, maybe up towards the back. See one in the center at the back. <laughs> yes. Hi, my name is Amna. My, I'm representing the police service of Pakistan. Uh, my question is from Rumi. I mean, great presentation about what the US is doing in terms of uh, giving out money to, to the victims of gender-based violence. But I, I had a question from my understandings and my experiences in Pakistan in handling gender-based violence. How does the US government then, uh, I'd say, calculate the impact of the money that is being sent like is it trickling down to the victim or is it not like how do you gauge that this has led to justice like how are you defining justice in that term and my second question would be that from my own experiences I've seen that a lot of these organizations that are working are usually working in the urban cities and in the global south there's a huge population that live in lives in the rural cities so most of the they're conveniently ignored and they're out of the picture and to be honest, that's exactly where the help is needed the most. So how do you counter that? Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's take another one. I see a hand right here. Yes. Merci beaucoup pour la parole. Je vais simplement parler en français. Je sais pas qu'il y aura un traducteur. Do we have a French translator available? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Moi, c'est Fredine Dongozi. Je suis du ministère de Santé en province de la RD Congo, en province du Sud Kivu. Et je suis le responsable des luttes contre le paludisme dans la province. Et la question de violence sexuelle me fascine quand même. His name is Dr. Fredine Dongozi. He works with the Ministry of Health in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And he is interested in. in conflict-related sexual violence, but he, he's also the person responsible for the malaria program in the province, in South Kivu, in the Eastern DRC. Bon, au fait, j'ai comme l'impression que nous avons plus de données sur 
les survivants, donc les victimes, et peu de données sur l'auteur des violences sexuelles ou les bourreaux. Uh, I have an alors, je me pose la question, est-ce que vous ne pensez pas que l'étude de l'auteur peut orienter vers une partie des réponses et avoir une partie des puzzles Do you believe that we need more research on perpetrators uh, to help address sexual violence effectively oui, et là, ma question revient encore sur, euh, auprès d'Elisabeth et, et, et Philippe. Uh, Est-ce que les groupes armés ont les mêmes comportements Est-ce que la fréquence dépend du comportement du commandant de groupes armés so, Does sexual violence depend on orders or behavior of the commander of the armed group? Puisque moi j'aime dire, euh, dans les victimes de violence, on parle de victimes avec handicap et non handicap, et les statistiques nous disent que c'est différent par rapport à la fréquence de viol. Est-ce que ça ne peut pas être la, la même chose auprès de groupes armés ou auprès du commandant? Un commandant handicapé, avoir des problèmes psychologiques, Effectivement, on peut avoir une fréquence élevée dans son groupe de, de violence. Well, so, if the commander is handicapped, is a, an handicapped person, uh, maybe there will be more sexual violence in his armed group than the commander who is, who is physically strong and, and intellectually strong. So, do you think uh, there are variations, differences? Okay, thank you. I think we have to probably stop there. I think, did, did you get most of the question, Philippe? Okay, great. Let me just take one more question and then we can turn it back to our panel for the rest of the time. I see a hand right here at the front. Thank you so much. Hello, uh, thank you. My name is Ingrid Constanza Odegaard, University of Oslo, but also Gieses Cologne and um, chair of the Children Born of War Foundation. I think this is really great bridging. Uh, between the research policy and practice. And basically, I have a question for all of you because what I learned from Professor Wood is that we know quite a bit and we have data. What I learned from uh, Dr. Shah is that she's also collecting data. And I learned that policy is interested in using data for policy implementation. So I ask myself, where is the missing link and where is the bridge? I have the feeling that very often We're still too much in silos, having worked on children born of war for 25 years, trying to bridge that. I've learned over and over again, it's very often the same voices. And by the way, when we talk about evidence base, we need to know that we talk about knowledge base, because there's a lot of voices we don't hear because we don't know about them yet, or because they've even been killed, which is, for example, the case with my children born of war. So they don't have a voice. So whose job is it to make those voices heard? And how is the data sharing and research sharing working amongst you? I would really be interested in understanding how it's actually communicated and bridged. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we'll turn back now to the panel 
And if it's okay with you, maybe we'll just go down the line and you can respond to whatever strikes your fancy. <laughs> um, why don't we start at the end here, Pyle, why don't you go first? Okay, great. Sorry, I was expecting you to start on the other side, um, but thank you so much. Uh, maybe I'll start with the last question. Um, so I, I think it's a really great question, and it's a really important one. And spaces like this are really important to be starting to bring together different disciplines, um, but there's definitely a need for more of it. Um, Part of the way, PHR is small, we're about you know, 35, 40 people, so we, we do this in, in a micro way. Um, and a lot of the way that we tackle this is really thinking very intentionally about how we are linking the work with our partners um, and, and shaping norms actually. Instead of trying to bring global norms down to our partners, it's actually working with our partners to identify problems, to innovate solutions in the context that we are in, um, and then actually trying to, to bring it back up to the international level from that starting point. So, for example, I was mentioning that standardized medical legal documentation form, and that's a form that we developed together with partners in, in DRC um, with with very deep consultation, a lot of expertise locally as well as, as international practice, but really looking on what could we develop that fit that very specific context, and then doing the work of drawing from that into um, then engaging in international processes and efforts to, st to create like good practices or, or tools and have that reflected there. So then you'll see that standardized medical legal documentation form annexed to the international protocol and documentation of conflict-related sexual violence. And so that is one of the ways I think we're trying to address the, the piece that you're talking about where it often feels like we're trying to bring people, you know, the movement is trying to bring in top-down strategies into context where it doesn't work, where we need to be engaging knowledge um, from, you know, in, in different corners and different sectors and, and to be addressing that kind of very colonial mindset, right, of we, we have the solutions here in DC and we're gonna ship them out. Um, but I think it's, it's also, I think the other piece that we're trying to do is really focus on multidisciplinary teams and really intentionally, even within PHR, our work, our team is, is and the only, I think there's, there's like lawyers, there's public health, there's former police, there's a software engineer, and we have kind of a whole range and, and it's even within our own organization trying to, to bridge those different pieces of knowledge and there's a lot of debate and you know, we'll, we'll like talk about the public health term excess births and as a lawyer, I'm like, that's a what? <laughs> like, you know, we have to talk about that differently. And so there's a lot of conversation too on how do we create um, our products and our knowledge, how do we put it out in a way that's accessible and easy to utilize and practical um, and then can also be adapted to different contexts. I hope that answers some of the question. Wonderful. Uh, we have five minutes remaining, just keeping an eye on the time. So as briefly as possible um, as we go. Um, okay. Uh, so I wanted to address the uh, lady's question, I think, from, from Pakistan in the back. It actually dovetails into my third point that I was going to make about the third stream of work, which is that for DRL, we have small grants and micro grants, and that's really the heart of DRL's work. And that is how we get to the grassroots level and work with civil society organizations and survivor-led organizations. It's something that we've done as a donor, I think, quite well that other donors are still trying to figure out. And that is how we get out of the capitals, how we get to victims who you know, have to walk 45 miles to get to a hospital legal assistance, um, all of that. So I do think that we have a proof of concept of how we're doing that well. 
we need more assistance in that space. We need other donors to collaborate with us. And, and we have seen more money going to rural areas as opposed to just the capital. And I think there are many examples of that. But we need to lean into that more. Um, and we've really empowered, I think, civil um, society as well as survivor-led groups to ask for that funding and to know where to go and, and how to speak the donor language in order to get those um, resources to trickle down to victims and survivors. Um, that's the success story. There are large holes, of course, and, and in, in how that assistance gets to the people who actually really need it. Um, and then the second element, uh, which was actually in my notes, which I would like to just read because it actually came from my applied learning and evaluation team, is that you know there's been an explosion of activity in the CRSV research um, and intervention space uh, especially in the last 10 years. Um, and my colleague said, and I'd like to just quote her, it's nearly impossible for those of us who are not scholars in the field to keep up with this constant new research, making it difficult to use it in programming. Furthermore, there is always gaps in literature for highly contextualized application like ours due to untested external validity. There's a need for research to focus specifically on application to government and private foreign assistance funding. And I would say, that gap needs to be met. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, Philip and Libby, I think you each have about 90 seconds if you have some final thoughts before we close out the session. At the time as I speak. Um, I'm going to address your question, Sophia, I think about the intimate partner violence link, which I think is important and which maybe plays out a little bit differently in the context of sexual violence against men. So at least from what I understood from your question, we know that you know sexual violence in conflict is a, sits on a continuum of intimate partner violence that may happen before that and then that may also sort of happen after that. And so I think in the context of sexual violence against men, there's at least a danger, I think, that we need to be attentive to that, you know, the effects of that violence on unsettling and impacting male survivors' masculinities and taking away their authority and their power, you know, and their yeah, position of dominance may be responded to in different ways, including, for instance, through the use of violence, including intimate partner violence within the home, you know, as an attempt to sort of regain some of that strength. And I think it's something that we absolutely need to be attentive to and be aware of without then also falling into the trap of saying, okay, all of these victims are also potential perpetrators and sort of, you know, flipping that around. Um, but I think that's absolutely, and I think there's much more work to be, to be done on that. <laughs> Very briefly, I think there are a lot of implications for policy from the recent research, and I'd be happy to brainstorm with people over the next few days about what I think some of the most salient ones are. But I did want to address the question about perpetrators. Yes, I definitely think more research needs to be done on uh, perpetrators of sexual violence um, uh, who are often have been victimized themselves, often with sexual violence. So. I think one of the most effective research methods for this are oral histories where you really invite the person, former combatant or present combatant, to narrate the long version of how what brought them um, to this point. Uh, I think that's very important. But also, parallel to that, those members uh, perhaps of the same organization that did not engage in sexual violence, one. And then two, yes, there's a lot of variation uh, particularly when sexual violence occurs as a practice acro um, across commanders. And I would say it's not so much a matter of physical or cognitive strength, it's more the, the um, really some commanders just so devalue 
uh, women and girls and other people who their combatants target, that they just don't care. It's easier just not to engage with their combatants uh, at all. So it's that disregard that's reflected. Yeah. All right, wonderful. So that will bring our panel to a close. Um, I just wanted to express my gratitude and appreciation to my fellow panelists on the stage. I continue to learn so much from each of you. Um, there's so much more to say. Uh, I could talk to each of you for hours more. Um, but for those of you in the room, we can continue those conversations offline. Thank you all for being here as well. And thank you once again to our online audience for joining us via the live stream. Um, with that, I'm going to uh, let me please join me in thanking our panel. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> um, and with that, I'm going to turn the floor back over to my colleague, Kathleen. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And thank you to the panel. That was a very rich discussion. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.